Well, if you're able, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We return again to the Exodus of the Lord's people, Israel, who are protected under the covenant made with Abraham, where God promised to Abraham to provide a people numerous, greater than the numbers of the stars of the sky, and not just a people, but that they would be formed into a nation and be provided a land. And we know that it goes even beyond that, for that plays into, that serves that greater covenant, the covenant of grace, whereby God promises through Abraham to provide an offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. What a wonder and mercy it is for us who take refuge in that offspring this morning. And it is not... uh, The revelation of Christ is not absent from our passage this morning. For as we will see, as the Lord works through the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt, so the Lord is showing forth His deliverance of us, whom the Scripture says have come out of darkness and into light, out of slavery and into liberty. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 8. I'll begin in verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 32. The word of the Lord says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. 
Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and he made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in need of your spirit, so that by the power of your spirit, through this word preached through a clay vessel, your truth may be heard by your people Not just that we would hear your word, Lord, but then again, by the power of your spirit, it would move in us, enliven our hearts, to move in our bodies. We would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. Oh, Lord, we are forgetful people. Have mercy on us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have been examining the connection between Pharaoh's question in chapter 5 where he asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? And we've been looking how the Lord is, is taking ten plagues to answer that question. We began with asking the question ourselves, Who is like Yahweh? And last week we made an emphasis on the source of the answer being found in God's revealed word that the Christian is to be constant on guard from false teaching, and so is to be constant in sitting under the word of God preached in the assembly, as well as holding fast to it in our private and family worship. This morning we look at the fourth plague of flies and see a stress upon worship, and it's a stress upon God's worship according to his word. Our worship is to be directed toward the Lord alone. Limited by his revealed will alone. And by this, the believer's attention is to be drawn away from this ever-changing world and to the unchangeable God of heaven and earth. My goal for us this morning is that we would see our worship is to be directed toward the Lord alone. Limited by his revealed will alone. And by this, the believer's attention is to be drawn away from this ever-changing world and to the unchangeable God of heaven and earth. As we've been looking at these plagues, we've been recognizing that they come not in happenstance, and they're not found in this narrative in a way that's uh, not recognizable in, uh, in arrangement and purpose. The arrangement is we see that there, there are the first nine plagues that are arranged in three threes. These three divisions are seen clearly when we recognize that each first plague of the threes has a warning. And then we have uh, the third plague ending the series that comes with no warning at all. And this all points to and funnels us towards the tenth plague. The plague of the angel of death. The plague of the death of the firstborns, and so it's within that the Lord establishes one of the three festivals, or one of the three 
times where uh, all those were to gather in Jerusalem, and that being the Passover. And so we also see within these that there is a manifold purpose given. They give a public manifestation of the mighty power of the Lord. They were a divine visitation of wrath, both upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as well as they were a judgment from God upon the gods of Egypt. And they demonstrated that Jehovah was high above all gods. That there is not a pantheon of gods, but there is only one true and living God. Not that there isn't other powers, for the scriptures recognize that, but those powers act subservient to are under the supreme power, the one sovereign power, the one whom all other powers are dependent upon. That is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They also were to display man's utter inability and dependence, as well as God's utter omnipotence and independence, what's known as his aseity. They were a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who curse the Israelites. And so God in these plagues was already paving the way or making low the path or level the path for them to enter into the promised land. And these plagues were meant to strengthen the people of God in knowledge of God. It was for them to know better their covenant God. As we will see, the Israelites, or as will be make mention, the Israelites would have uh, m- known well the gods of the Egyptians. They had generations to learn of these gods and their practices. So here the Lord sets out to demonstrate himself to them so they would know better their covenant God. As we've been recognizing that this demonstration comes really to the Israelites primarily. Though he acts upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh and upon the land of Egypt, he's doing so in demonstration primarily for the Israelites, for he's telling Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may serve me, that they may worship me, that they may offer sacrifice to me, that they may hold a a festival to me. The Lord was declaring himself to be the Lord alone, and so the Lord alone is to be worshipped. For as the Lord works through these plagues and through these demonstrations of his power, he continues to put under him every deity that was claimed in Egypt. Well, maybe not every deity that they claimed, but a number of the deities that were claimed in Egypt, such that the people of Israel could not look back and say they were delivered by the hand of any of them. This fourth plague puts a punctuation mark on that, for as we see in verse 23, it's the first time we've come to see that the Lord puts a division between his people and the Egyptians with these plagues. We can uh, 
we don't need to assume that this is the first time that this happens, but we do know that this is the first time it is brought to our attention. And so it should draw our attention. But we didn't see it being referenced in those first three plagues. And even if those first three plagues fell upon the Israelites also, as it would be in a way that a father disciplines his child and brings them up, maybe not disciplining them, but instructing them, here the instruction is to be crystal clear. But there is a division between Israel and the Egyptians. This division here, uh, this word division, is translated in our English Bibles such, in such a way. But it also conveys a term of redemption or covering or setting apart. Division is uh, the um, interpretation of the word. It's more literal understanding it has to do with redemption. The Lord is literally saying, I will put a redemption between my people and your people. The Lord was continuing his proclamation to the Israelites that he is going to redeem them. Remember when uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and, and Aaron, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh in his first attempt or their first attempt at persuading Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, Pharaoh hardens their labor. He causes their labor to be more intense and the people cry out and say, is this how we are to be delivered? And here the Lord says, I will put a division between my people and your people. The other thing we can see by way of observation is now the word of the Lord is the word of Moses. There's no second narrative where the, word, where the Lord tells Moses to say something, and then it, Moses goes and says it. The assumption is that Moses is obeying the Lord. As we see the Lord demonstrating that he alone is the Lord to be worshipped, he, he, he does so by way of setting apart his people. And he does so in such a miraculous way. Maybe some of you have heard the term herding cats. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's a southern term. Maybe it's something my dad used to say and I just came to know. But there's a term that says it's like herding cats. And it's supposed to communicate that cats are hard to herd. They're independent animals. They go and come as they please. Much like demons. But I digress. But as hard as it is to herd cats, it's kind of possible. I've seen video clips of cats trained to do crazy tricks and they follow the uh, instruction or they follow the, um, the training of their trainer. But there is no term, it's like herding flies. That is impossible. I can't. Keep them out of my house. There is seemingly no way to herd flies. And yet here, the Lord tells the flies, they will go this far and no further shall they go. 
You will enter into these homes. You will, you will land upon this ground. You will uh, harass. And the understanding is bite these people. But these people you shall not touch. There is no cognition of a fly that the Lord could tap into. It was by his power alone that the flies stayed away from the Israelites, stayed away from the land of Goshen. The Egyptian people, though, they couldn't eat without ingesting flies. They couldn't sleep without flies covering their bodies. They couldn't work for having to swap flies and or because they couldn't see well through the swarms. It is also assumed that their skin was welted with fly bites. The term for fly here is a general flying insect, such that it encapsulates all sorts of flying insects, including mosquitoes. Some translations say such things. We come to that conclusion, though, not just the entomology of the word, but also from Psalm 78, where it says these flies consumed the Egyptians. Now, I don't know about you, but I get mosquito bites every now and then, and I would not want the description of being harassed by mosquitoes as being consumed by mosquitoes. But such were the flies, such were these flying insects to the Egyptians. And it's possible that in the homes of these Egyptians or upon some... Uh, some demonstration in their society, there was the god Kepri. Kepri was associated with the scarab or dung beetle or insects. The Egyptians watched the scarab beetle rolling dung into a ball and pushing it along the ground to its burrow. The Egyptians made a connection between the movement of the sun across the sky and the movement of the ball of dung pushed by the dung beetle. And so it was said that Kepri pushed the sun across the sky. We see in this the depravity of man, that they could look upon such, such an insect pushing dung and draw to worship the creature and deny worship of the Creator. So the Lord brought these swarms of flies to cover the land, to cover the ground. There was no God of Kepri. There was no God who pushed the sun across the sky. But more prominently, this God and the cultic worship of it, or recognition of this God, was and could have been and assumed to be known by the Israelites who had lived generations in close proximity to its practices. The Lord was showing his verity in contradistinction to the falseness of this God. The Lord was demonstrating before he brings the Israel, Israelites out of Egypt to do what? To worship him. Before he does that, he's demonstrating to them that he is the God alone to be worshipped. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here now the Israelites are posed, are, are, are there on the precipice of taking possession of the land. 
They have now passed by Sinai. They have a whole generation due to their unfaithfulness have died out. And now this new generation has risen and the Lord is giving them a law that they would follow in the land. And we read in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then shall it come to pass, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you out of the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. And the the Lord doesn't say, then... You'll never go astray. You'll be completely satisfied. What else would there be but for you to worship me? So just go ahead and worship me. What does he say? He says, watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. It's interesting, this understanding of these teachings that are to be taught diligently in every place. They're not only to be in every place to talk to every person, but they're also to be on things. Much like the flies, the plague of flies in Egypt. He draws their attention back to Egypt in verse 12. He says, remember Egypt, remember slavery, remember your redemption. In some ways he's saying, remember the flies. Not only their pervasiveness and so should be the t- your teaching of my ways, but also the distinction I made between you and them, between me and all other Gods, so that they would fear Him alone, worship Him alone, and not forget the Lord. The Lord not only provides such in His Word, He proclaims such in His creation. But There is one true and living God who rules over all things. Some of the great philosophers of the ages could could look at the world and surmise that if this world has existence, there must be something that causes its existence. And that thing that causes the world to exist could not be caused itself. And if that thing is not caused, that causes all things, then there must be some true things about that uncaused causer. But that thing could not be, or that being could not be bound by any space. It would have to be infinite. Thing could not be bound by time. It would have to be eternal. 
It could not be dependent on anything, so it must be simple and assay or independent. These things can be drawn from nature. And yet the Lord is merciful to not just provide for us for by that knowledge. In our fallen state in Adam, we are actually condemned, as Romans 1 says, because it is plain to all who God is and His power and His might. And yet we suppress the truth and ungodliness and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And so the Lord has given us his direct and special revelation of his word. And it's by his word the Lord draws us to know how he is to be worshipped. For in nature we may surmise many things about who God is, but we cannot come to know how this God is to be worshipped. That was revealed first to Adam. In the garden, he was to be worshipped through obedience. Through the holding fast to the, the covenant of works. After that covenant was broken, it is implied that he was directed to worship according to sacrifice. For now, there was this chasm between man and God and the chasm could only be overcome through the shedding of blood and so this typological worship of sacrifice was given to Adam and the patriarchs so that we see in every moment and epoch of time the patriarchs coming to God and after he does something wonderful reveals himself to them what do they do they set up an altar and they worship God and sacrifice to him But that is because God had commanded it by his word. And so it is through all ages and all epochs, God's people have always been constrained, blessedly constrained. For without it, we have no knowledge of right worship to worship God according to his word alone. This is directly attacked by Pharaoh in Exodus 8. For Pharaoh says in verse 25, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. And then again he says in verse 28, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away and make supplication for me. Here Pharaoh grants Israel permission to worship their God. He does not insist that they bow down to his gods, but he suggests there's no need for them to be so extreme. If there's any generation alive today, our generation should know this well. We were confronted with this just years ago. When we were told, look, First, it's a, worship's not a big deal. You don't need to gather. Then we were told, you can gather, but don't be so extreme as to sing songs and be near one another. Oh, how Pharaoh's spirit, for it reflects the spirit of the age, the spirit 
of the prince of darkness, the spirit of the flesh, is present today. Oh, that we are not called in many times to bow down to other gods, but just don't serve your God in a radical way. Don't be so extreme. And what is the extremity they want to prevent? The extremity is that you would worship him according to his word. Pharaoh aims to get the believer to mix the world and the church. How well he has succeeded. Professing Christians have, for the most part, so assimilated their worship to Egyptian patterns that instead of being hated by the world, they have taught the men of the world to join in with them. I dare not bring up such blasphemous videos that are circulating the internet of such churches that offer a night at the movies or a day at the movies or whatever that theme is that such people would come up masquerading as pastors in costumes entertaining as we said last week tickling the ears of those present but what are they doing they're enjoining they're entreating the praises of the world What a creative way to reach people. What a wonderful thing to lower the guard and the uh, things that can be hard to handle in church. Oh, that they would see that they've assimilated themselves with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Oh, they would see that they are not being set apart, but they are amongst the flies. They're covered in them. They're plagued by them. Pharaoh just wants a little change. You can worship your God. Just change a little. Compromise. Moses rightfully says this is not how the Lord has commanded us. A.W. Pink says it was the word of God which he sought to neutralize. The Lord had said in the wilderness to have worshipped God in the land would therefore have been rank disobedience. When God has spoken, that settles the matter. No room is left for debating or reasoning. It is vain for us to discuss and dispute our duty. Our duty is to submit. The word itself must regulate our worship and service as well as everything else. Human opinions, human traditions... Custom, convenience, have nothing to do with it. Divine revelation is our only court of appeal. We worship God according to the theological principle of the regulative principle of worship. That is, as our confession says in chapter uh, 22... Recognizing that the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just good and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that we may not 
that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, here the suggestions of Pharaoh, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. The chapter goes on to delineate the elements of worship that ought to be present in the divine worship service of God. Such that when they're not present, it is not an orderly worship. And I might go as far as to say it's not acceptable worship. The introduction of new elements not prescribed in Scripture is on sandy ground. It's on ground conceived of in human opinions, our human traditions, our convenience. Such that we see these suggestions coming in from Pharaoh. He says, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice. Only don't go very far away. This is one of the favorite and most successful of the evil one's temptations. Avoid extremes. Do not be fanatical. Be sane and sensible in your religious life. Beware of becoming narrow-minded. Are so many different ways of expressing the same thing. If you really must be a Christian, do not let it spoil your life. There's no need to cut loose from your old friends and associations. God does not want you to be long-faced and miserable. The word of the Lord says in 1 John 2, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Brothers and sisters, Let us worship the Lord in joy when we worship Him according to His revealed will. Let us be occupied with that which imparts a deeper, fuller, more lasting and satisfying joy than anything which the poor world has to offer. By being absorbed with the infinite perfections of Christ, by meditating upon the precious promises of the Word. As we recognize we are called to do so. This is how we are to live out our life. This is how we are to live a life in gratitude for redemption won for us in Christ. I challenge us now to see ourselves in Pharaoh. To ask yourself, are you like Pharaoh? For man as a creature is prone to change. We are mutable. Mutability in will and affections. Opposed to the immutability of will and God. We waver between God and Baal. And while we are not only resolving, but upon motion a little way, look back with a hankering after Sodom sometimes lifted up with heavenly intentions and presently cast down with earthly cares. 
Pharaoh more than once promised and probably resolved to let Israel go. But at the end of the storm, his purposes vanish. When the trials are thick and the times are tough. We resolve things. We look at our life and we say, this can't be the way it should be. Look at all that I've caused. I need to be better. I need to resolve to do better. And then at the moment we resolve, we cast our trust upon our own ability, upon our own resolution. We make our faith in our faith. And so we fall into the folly of Pharaoh himself. Stephen Charnock says, That which seems to be our pleasure this day is our vexation tomorrow. A fear of a judgment puts us in a religious pang, and a love to our lusts reduces us to a rebellious inclination. As soon as the danger is over, the saint is forgotten. Salvation and damnation present themselves to us, touch us, and engender some weak wishes, which are dissolved by the next allurements of carnal interest. No hold can be taken of our promises. No credit is to be given to our resolutions. Not our resolutions to give more, to read more, to pray more. This is me. No amount of rededicating oneself to follow Jesus. will make us not like Pharaoh. I grew up in a church culture where when you strayed and depending on how long you strayed would have to determine the fervency of your return. Such that if you spent a week not reading your Bible, you only had to maybe sing a little louder in church the next week if you had resolved to do better. Read more of your Bible. For those of us that got to attend summer camps, you get to that Thursday night when they're looking for responses and they offer to the believer. They say those that are believers who want to rededicate their life to Christ, stick around, raise your hand. They were asking us all to be pharaohs. They were saying, double down on your own ability, on your own resolve. The problem isn't that you don't have a conception of Christ and what he has done for you. The problem is, is that you're just not determined enough. Blessed be the Lord who disciplines his true sons and daughters to take hold of of our Savior's outstretched hand and mighty arm by faith and by faith alone. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, 
and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the old order of Melchizedek. When you seek to restore yourself to God according to resolution and rededication and doubling down on your devotions, you become your own high priest, for you bring your own sacrament to God as if you would be accepted by it. Yet scripture tells us it is Christ who has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. Now, as we will read in the Lord's Supper, he enters not with the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. This is a fulfillment of what God has immutably decreed. In eternity past, because it is rooted in his unchangeable, immutable being. Stephen Carnock says, instead of, well, he doesn't say this, I say, instead of choosing ourselves and all of our mutability, all of our wavering, all of our highs and lows, Charnock says, prefer an immutable God. God is subject to no decay within, to no force without. Nothing in his own nature can change him from what he is. And there is no power above can hinder him from being what he will to the soul. He is an ocean of all perfection. He wants nothing without himself to render him blessed, which may allure him to change. His creatures can want nothing out of him to make them happy. That is, his creatures should want nothing but him to make them happy, whereby they may be enticed to prefer anything before him. If we enjoy other things, it is by God's donation, who can as well withdraw them as bestow them. And it is but a reasonable as well as a necessary thing to endeavor the enjoyment of the immutable benefactor rather than his revocable gifts. There's a song called... um, it escapes me now, but the term says that we would seek not the gain, but the giver. Our worship is to be directed toward God alone, according to his word alone, because we worship the immutable God and we know our own hearts. They're subject to change. Our worship is to be directed toward the Lord alone limited by his revealed will alone. By this, the believer's attention is to be drawn away from this ever-changing world, our ever-changing selves, and to the unchangeable God of heaven and earth and his unchangeable promises to us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. How many times, Lord, have we changed since the beginning of this service, and yet you change not. 
How many times have we wavered since the beginning of this service, and yet you waver not? Oh Lord, help us that we would see the wonders of your promises, the wonders of the covenant of grace in Christ our Lord, that we would joy above all others with fervency, worship you in spirit and truth. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand with me again as I invite Aaron and Christy up for our last hymn this morning. Rock of Ages, hymn number 421.